Romans chapter 11, I'm going to start and end there this morning. Romans chapter 11, just to kind of set our minds at ease and uh, in focus as to what it is that, that God's called us to today. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a great introduction to start us off as we ask these questions. What does the Bible say about free will or predestination? Does God really choose some people for heaven and some for hell? And if God knows everything, do we as Christians have free will? So I've had a few people greet me this week in preparation for this message like, bro, I am praying for you this weekend, like I'm going into battle or something. Uh, I'm not, so in case you're wondering, I'm, I'm not going into battle. Um, at the onset, I need to confess and admit that we are not going to get into the breadth and the depth of some of the theological, um, it's not even a rabbit trail, but some of the theological nuances of these questions this morning. I really uh, had to work hard this week in my preparation to focus on answering the questions and not get distracted by some of the other things that we could talk about. And so what I want to do at first is go at the first question. That's a pretty novel concept, right? So what does the Bible say about free will and predestination? Well, let me give you a few verses, obviously not all of them, uh, but a few verses in Scripture that speak towards uh, our free will. John 3.16, for God so loved the world this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The inference there is the one who believes in him has the ability to place his trust in Jesus Christ, so there is free will represented in that verse. John chapter 5, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. The inference there is the people have rejected Jesus. They are exercising their free will in a negative way. Luke chapter 7, verse 30, but since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized in him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. Again, a picture of free will being exercised in a more negative way. In Acts 7, 51, you stiff-necked people. There's an insult we need to go back to. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, probably should leave that one out nowadays, and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. Again, a picture of the free will, more in a negative term, but the ability to resist the Holy Spirit. So what does the Bible say about free will? That is certainly not a full biblical theology or full teaching on what the Bible says about free will. Those are just examples to show to you that the Bible does in fact teach clearly that man has the ability to choose for himself. What does the Bible say about something called predestination or election or the choice of God in the life of the man? We'll look at John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on that last day. The picture of the drawing work um, of the Father necessary for someone to choose Jesus. John 15, 16. You didn't choose me, 
I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give it to you. The picture of God's choice in the lives of the people that he has elected. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The inference in that phrase, those who had been appointed to eternal life, is that somewhere in eternity past, there had been those who had been chosen to receive that gift of eternal life. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's writing this to those chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient, be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So when you walk through Scripture, again, that's not exorbitant, that's not exhaustive, that's not the entire list, but Scripture is very clear that there is something to that word predestination or election that is actually found in Scripture. So you have two very different ideas being presented in Scripture. Man has free will, and God chose you. So how do you reconcile God's election, or predestination, with the responsibility or free will of man? Now as you go through history, you see a couple of attempts to do that. You see people who believe in election and reject free will. Then you see people who believe in free will and reject election. Then you get these people who do that horrible thing that kids do with their meals sometimes, and they just pile all the food into one big pile. They say, let's mush it all together, and that'll help us figure it out. And the reality is, no, election and free will go together. They're, um, They're friends. There's no need to reconcile election and free will. Now, they're, they're a different kind of friends. I mean, so let me, let me here's, here's a picture for you. We all know those married couples that you look at and you're like, how did that happen? <laughs> right? I mean, you got to see our youth pastor a few minutes ago. <laughs> yes. He's not even here. But that's one of those, like, Michelle's way too nice. <laughs> But we all, you all have your own couples in your head when you think of that. It's the same thing with election and free will. It's like, I don't know how they go together, but somehow they do. And, and that's what we need to understand. You don't have to reconcile them. Spurgeon said something about this. He said, you know, Scripture clearly teaches the election of God, and it does. And if Scripture clearly teaches the free will of man, and it does then both of those things are true. It's only my own foolishness that could lead me to think those two truths would actually contradict with each other. So, so what we need to remember is we're approaching this with these itty-bitty little brains thinking that we're going to be able to comprehend the majestic, holy, infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God in these itty-bitty little brains. It's similar to going to a yard sale on Saturday and picking up a $5 telescope and sitting in your backyard that night like, I'm going to see everything. And you set it up and you look and it's like, yeah, the moon's bigger, but it's no clearer, right? I mean, the $5 telescope isn't going to do a whole lot for you. And that's, that's, that's kind of the way it works for us. Theology is our $5 telescope. And we are looking at the vast expanse that is God himself. Now, I know some of you in here are very allegiant to your theology, so I will defer and say you have a $10 telescope. (laughs) 
You know, it doesn't matter because there's this thing called the Hubble telescope that costs $2.1 billion and it still hasn't touched the edges yet. That's the difficulty in the study of God. Please, now, this is very important because anytime I say these things, people afterwards are always asking like, oh, so you're saying we shouldn't, that is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't study. I am not saying that digging into these topics is a waste of time. I'm not saying we shouldn't spend the time and energy to wrap our heads around a theology that is deep and heavy and heady and overwhelming. We should, and we means all of us. Every single one of us in this room needs to be diving deep into these things. It's how you love the Lord your God with your whole mind. So, so don't pull back. It's uncomfortable. I'm going to admit, it's uncomfortable. Okay, I am a guy who does not like, I know this surprises you, I don't like super high, heady conversations. And so when I went to Bible college and seminary and then worked at a church that had a seminary, and so my coworkers were, were seminary faculty and professors, we would have meetings and they would just start talking up here and it was like, I don't have any desire to get into that. And one day, a good friend of mine, <laughs> Al pulled me aside and said, Frank, I gotta have that little conversation with you. I said, what up, Al? And Al is a man about this big. He is your typical seminary prof. He actually had two PhDs, not one. His first one was in biochemical engineering. And then he got bored, so he decided to get a PhD in theology. Because, you know, he wasn't doing anything else at the time. About this big. You know those old shirts, with the old white shirts that were like, kind of like off-color white, and the collars were really wide? And Al would wear one of those and come in, and he had a couple of wisps on the top of his head. And he sat down, and he's like, you know, my man, I want to have a little conversation with you. And like, all right, here we go. And he said, um, God's big. Thanks, Al. And you disrespect him by not trying to fathom how big he is. I, I, my office, I know exactly where I was. He was sitting across from me, and I was like, Al, you just became a very good friend. And, and he, was. he was. He called me to that. So let me call you to that, man. You disrespect this massive God who wants to know you if you don't want to get to know him. So please don't hear me when I oversimplify and overgeneralize in theology. Please don't hear me say it's not worth your time. It is absolutely worth your time. With that being said, I need to oversimplify and overgeneralize these two areas that kind of fall out within these questions. And those two areas are commonly known as Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, so let me, uh, I'm gonna give you, man, Al would be like clutching his chest right now if he hears me teach this, but <laughs> I'm gonna give you a very quick, broad, oversimplified and overgeneralized picture of the two. Um, bear with me. This is the discussion that has been happening for literally hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of years as, as men and women have tried to wrestle with how God functions, particularly in the realm of salvation. But it's important for us to be able to, to wrestle with these, and then I'm going to super oversimplify in order to answer the next question, okay? So, so you've got, let me, let me go over here. This side will be Calvinism. Calvinism was over here. So historically, you've got many of the reformers, you've got the Puritans, you've got uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You've got J.I. Packer, great theologian, and one of the, a number of modern pastors, popular pastors around the country. Uh, in particular, you've got John MacArthur. Th that would be the Calvinist team. Go team Calvinist, okay? So you got 
the Presbyterian churches, Wesleyan, uh, sorry, not Wesleyan churches, I apologize, Presbyterian churches, uh, Reformed churches, and many Baptist churches would be here on the Calvinist side, okay? Over here, you got Team Arminian. Team Arminian, uh, you, you've got John and Charles Wesley in the history, you've got Charles Finney, D.L. Moody falls over here, Billy Graham, and today Rick Warren would, would be over here in the Arminian camp. Uh, if you look at the type of churches that would be Arminian, you've got Wesleyans, uh, many Baptists, because they're like schizophrenic, they can't figure out which side they want to be on. Uh, you've got Pentecostals are over here. Um, you, so you usually have all of those, those things here. So uh, in the Calvinist camp, if you, you want to go with a key word for this morning, the key word is predestination. Predestination. If you want to go with the key word for the Arminian camp for today, and again, this is a gross oversimplification, for today it's going to be, with two words, free will. Free will. So you've got predestination and free will. Now, I'm going to attempt to walk through the five main points of both. So what happened in history is um, Calvinism was kind of the most popular teaching of the time. Uh, John Calvin was a part of that. Martin Luther's teachings were actually adapted by um, um, John Calvin to a degree. And he created this, this theology and many people followed after that. And, and people in the, the Arminian camp, particularly, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, Jacobus Arminius, there we go, um, reacted to the camp of Calvin and they wrote out this thing called the Remonstrance. Remonstrance, there we go, Remonstrance. I actually did the Google thing. How in the world do you say this? The Remonstrance. Um, and what that is, it was a response to Calvinist teaching and they laid out their points and then Calvinists uh, at the Synod of Dort, there's a great name, uh, at the 1619, 1620, um, around that time, of, um, they, 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 sorry, 1618, 1619, they responded to the remonstrance and they uh, responded with the points of Calvinism, which today is most regularly known as TULIP. TULIP, it's the, the acronym so that way you can keep it in, in, in your mind how it works. So what I want to do is I'm going to tell you what the Calvinists believe in the TULIP points and then I'm going to tell you what the Arminians believe. Again, here's an important piece to understand. Not every Calvinist believes in all five points of TULIP. Not every Arminian believes in all five points of Arminianism. In fact, not every Calvinist <laughs> that believes in five points of Calvinism believes T for total depravity means the exact same thing. So there's a lot of changing in definitions and, and some different assignments there. So please hear that. Again, I am admitting at the beginning for the intent and purpose of our morning today, I have to be grossly overgeneralized and oversimplified, okay? Uh, I am not trying to pass a test this morning. I'm trying to give you general information and hope that that prompts you to, to dig in a little bit. So over here you've got Calvinism, and the T for TULIP is total depravity. So what they believe is that the fall of man, man is fully corrupt and will always choose sin. They have no ability to choose good or choose God in them at all. Excuse me one second, I have to cough. Uh, God predestined me to get the flu this week, so praise God. Okay, so total depravity, man can't choose good, he must choose sin. Over here, Ar Arminianism would say the same thing, total depravity. Um, mankind is rendered spiritually dead, and they're unable to do anything of value apart from God's grace being given to them. And so what the Arminians would believe is that God has given to every single one of us something called prevenient grace. 
Provenient grace is the ability to allow us to choose God or choose salvation in Jesus Christ. So over here, total depravity, you can't choose anything good. Over here, total depravity, but God's given us the ability in our total depravity to choose something good. I'm going to try not to lose you. We'll see what happens. All right, so then you get, and I, I'm just going to stop pretending like I'm doing this off the top of my head. I'm reading my notes. So, okay, over here you got unconditional election. The idea is that God chooses specific people to be saved for his good pleasure. Unconditional election. The Arminian response to that is election is actually conditioned on belief, on the faith of the person. The idea is that uh, predestination, foreknowledge, and election have to do with God existing outside of time, knowing who's going to choose Jesus, and those are his elect. So election is conditioned upon their choice of, of Jesus. So you've got total depravity, unconditional election, then you've got limited atonement. Limited atonement in the, the Calvinist teaching is that the death of Jesus Christ was only for the elect. So, so if, if, if the elect don't believe and follow Jesus, then Jesus' death was a failure, okay? Over here, Christ's atonement was unlimited in its extent. It was sufficient for the whole world, but effective for only those people who believed. All right, I'm not gonna get lost in the weeds on that one, I'm just gonna keep moving. Uh, Calvinism, irresistible grace. It's, it, it's a gift of life given to the elect. When, when God speaks into your heart and draws you, John 6, a verse we looked at just a few minutes ago, the Father is gonna draw you. When God draws you, you can't say no. Uh, Arminians would say there is resistible grace and it's giving the sinner the opportunity to exercise free will in choosing Jesus or in rejecting Jesus. Finally, Calvinism's last teaching would be on the perseverance of the saints. Because God is the author and the finisher of our salvation, we can't fall away from salvation. They would say you are born again and you can't be unborn. Arminians would say that there is a possibility of apostasy, that free will, because man had free will and exercised free will to get into the kingdom of God, man can exercise free will to get out of the kingdom of God. All right, so that is, <laughs> that is about $3,000 worth of seminary, really poorly applied. You're welcome. Okay, for, for our purposes today, that was a huge run through. Here, for Hertz, I'm gonna give you even a more oversimplified picture. For our purposes in answering particularly the next question, Arminian's main argument is that as lost as we are, we've all been given the opportunity to choose to believe in Jesus for salvation. As lost as we are, we've all been given the opportunity to choose in Jesus for salvation. Picture this uh, if you're a picture person like I am. The Arminian is heading this way on the road. He is uh, down a level and things are, he's out on the road to hell. God reaches down with one hand. The Arminian reaches up with one hand and that's how the Arminian gets his salvation. God reaches with one hand, the Arminian reaches with one hand. Okay, so for our purposes today, here's Calvinism. They believe we are totally and utterly lost, unable to make a choice to follow God, and those who God elects are drawn by a grace that cannot be resisted. Okay, that same picture, the Calvinist is heading down this road towards hell. 
God reaches down with both arms, grabs the Calvinist, and pulls him out. That's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Again, that is a gross oversimplification, but, but for today's question, it needs to be able to suffice, because that question, the next question, does God really choose some people for heaven and some people for hell? That comes out of this understanding, honestly, comes out of the Calvinist, sorry, Calvinist over here, <laughs> comes out of the Calvinist understanding of salvation. Let, let me, whenever I'm asked this question, the best way to answer it that I found is not to dig into the different theologies and, and, and show the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism, but the best way to answer it is to say this, there is nobody who is in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. Okay? Man is going to be held responsible for their sins in eternal torment in hell, not because they're not elect, but because they are sinners and they haven't submitted to Jesus Christ. I think for too many people, they think the logical outcome of a Calvinist position is a God who is cold, unloving, um, cruel, and deterministic. And we forget that in Scripture, what we find is God says he loves humanity. In fact, he demonstrates a universal love and displays that universal love in something called common grace. Common grace are the things that every single one of us get to enjoy, whether we're a believer or not a believer in Jesus Christ. We got to enjoy the common grace of a beautiful week this week. We got to enjoy the common grace of a sunrise or a sunset. We get to enjoy the, the common grace of, of living and enjoying life. And God extends common grace and demonstrates that universal love of people with a universal call of the gospel to all people. And, and so it leads you to this text in Matthew chapter 23 where, where Jesus is looking out over the people. I gotta find it here, sorry, I went too far in my notes, here it is. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. It says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. How many times I wanted to embrace you, but you didn't allow me to do that. So what, what Jesus is doing, the Son of God is overlooking a people who have rejected him. And what we see is a sinner's unwillingness, a, a sinner's raw rebellion and resistance to the love of God that's characteristic of the sinner. And you hear in the voice of Jesus in that passage, you, you hear the sorrow over their rejection of him. So, so don't look at God as this cruel, deterministic, unloving person who's condemning people to hell. The offer of salvation is available to all who would hear and receive. That's why in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 33, you hear God say, I don't, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Or, or, or Ezekiel chapter 18, where, where God actually asks himself the question, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, I take pleasure in their repentance. And, and so I think for many of us, we turn God into this, this cold, unfeeling entity, and that's not the case. You put all of this together, and Jesus says, man, I wanted you to draw, to draw in, I wanted to embrace you, but you wouldn't let me. So again, it points to the fact that the sinner needs to be willing to respond. And when they don't, 
It's a grief to the heart of God. And, and I think for us, as we see that, we wrestle with those two things. The election of God, the free will of man. Oh, those look like they're incompatible. But in God, they're perfectly aligned. So if, if, if God... If, 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 let me throw the question up there for you. If God knows everything, do we, as Christians, have free will? Okay, well, let's do this again. Are we responsible? Yes. Is God sovereign? Is he, is he sovereign over human will? Isaiah 46 says, yes, I'm God, there is no other. I'm God, no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. That's how great and grand our God is. There is no person, there is no entity, there is no uh, nation, there is no people group that can rebel against him and cause him to not be able to accomplish his plan because he's God, no one else is. So is he sovereign? Absolutely. Are we responsible for our choices? Don't be deceived. God won't be mocked. Whatever a person sows, they'll also reap. Our choices are our choices. And we have a will. And God's sovereign. And if we're going to be faithful to the, to the testimony of Scripture, we have to find a way to acknowledge both sides of the coin. That's a, a tall order to be able to explain how, isn't it? And so what it should force is a posture of humble worship. It brings me back to Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So, so in other words, what's being said right there is that when you start talking about the wisdom and the knowledge of God, you're in the deep end, and it's too deep to swim. The water is gonna continue to overwhelm you because it is so deep and so wide and so unsearchable, how unsearchable are his judgments, how untraceable are his ways. Folks, here's, here's the hard reality. While I strongly suggest and encourage every single one of us to dig like we have never dug before into the depths of the theology of who God is and how he acts, we must understand that at some point you have to say, look, I just can't find out. My God's too big. So how, how do you resolve predestination and free will? I say, it's past finding out. I have no idea how to answer that. I believe they're both true. I think they're both found in scripture. I think they're both accurate. I think they're both flowing out of the very character and nature of God. And how those to go together, I mean this, and this isn't just a throwaway phrase, this is reality. God only knows. But that should never get me to the place where it's like, oh man. But we do that too often. We're like, well, we don't know, so whatever. No, what that should lead us to as the, 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 the hymn in Romans continues, verse 34, for, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. And so when you get to that place, you're like, I just can't know, you worship you worship his transcendence. You worship his unsearchable nature. 
And I'll tell you this right now, that's the truest form of worship. The truest form of worship was seen in Abraham when he got to the bottom of that mountain and his son Isaac, his only son Isaac, the one that God had promised for so many years was to be his offering at the top of that mountain. And Abraham begins his journey up the mountain with his son in tow. He stops. He looks at his servants. He says, you guys stay here. Me and the boy, we're going to worship. Worship. How is that worship? Worship is when I come and sing and raise my hands and do things that make me feel good. Worship is when I get to to leave here and be like, oh, I got so much out of it this morning. What's Abraham going to get out of it? A dead son. But, but, But you know when worship is at its purest and truest is when you're allegiant and obedient to God even though you can't make sense of it all. And so Abraham continued on his journey up the mountain with his boy. They prepared the altar. Placed Isaac on it. As Abraham grabbed the knife in his hand to slit the boy's neck, God stopped him. The truest and purest form of worship is offering our allegiance, our obedience, and our submission to God even when we can't make sense of it all. One of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture is found in Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29. And this is what it says. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever so we may follow all the words of this law. The hidden things, those belong to God. And that's okay. Because he's revealed plenty of other stuff that we're responsible for so we better get cracking. But when it comes to those hidden things that we don't quite understand, Do we take a posture of humble worship, proclaiming that God is God and we are not? Or or do we get to the place where we think we can explain everything and we get arrogant about it? Because it's our understanding. May we yield our energy, our effort, our enthusiasm for theology May we yield it at the throne of God, knowing that even throughout all of eternity, we still won't have learned all there is to learn about him. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you um, for watching over us and caring for us in ways that we can't even begin to understand. Lord, I I know. (laughs) I'm fully aware uh, that there are so many questions that can continue in this vein of theology and talking Arminianism and Calvinism and 
and the doctrines of grace and how all these things fit together. But, but God, I, I just, I, I'm convinced that the best way to serve our church this morning is for us to yield our, our theology to you and to worship your, your might, your glory, your wonder. And to do it from a place of humility, understanding of what you've called us from. God, I ask that you would encourage our hearts today. Oh, Lord, I, I pray. <laughs> I pray for the soul of the one here who doesn't know Christ. Lord, would they know that Jesus came to set them free from the enslavement of sin? Would they know that their sin separates them from you? And that they desperately need Jesus to rescue them, to redeem them, to carry them to you? Uh, God, would today be the day, or maybe even during this last song, that they place their faith, confidence, and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone? Lord, I thank you for his love for us. May it never grow old. For it's in his good name I pray.